We're live. It's First Impressions Podcast. I'm here with Maggie. Hello. And I am Kristen Peruge. We are your First Impressions Podcasters. And we're really excited to be here today to talk about the 1987 adaptation of Northanger Abbey. But first, we have to wish everyone a happy new year. Happy new year. Happy new year. Yes. We hope you all have a wonderful 2020. I bind you 2019 from doing harm to others, harm to yourself. <laughs> Is, are you practicing like Wiccan occult stuff now? No, I just saw that meme from the craft and I thought it was cool. Oh. But Bay didn't get the reference because he's never seen the craft. I've never, never seen, seen the craft. Either. Oh my God. What? Oh. <laughs> we were just That's talking it. before we got on the podcast about how I've never seen anything. I've never what seen Pretty first? Woman. Seminal 1990s female empowerment movie. But is that the one where they make all of Ben Stiller's wife's hair fall out? Are you talking about the actress who played Jan Brady? Uh, yes. Marsha. Marsha Brady. Then yes, it is. <gasps> Maggie. But I the- can't tell you how much that movie scarred me because I have like, seen it. And every time I take a shower, I am certain that all my hair will fall out of my hands because of that fucking movie. I think it's very interesting that the thing you pinged on is the girl's hair falling out and not like her wishing the guy would fall in love with her and it becoming obsessive and toxic and then them murdering him. So... <laughs> <laughs> I That's... didn't even remember that part. No. <laughs> um, okay. Anyway, we're not here to talk about the craft. We're here to talk about Northanger Abbey, the She's crazy nineteen different. They're both balls to the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, what are your impressions of this movie? <laughs> I thought that I'd never seen it before. I thought that the movie itself was just okay. I thought that the soundtrack was fucking wild. Amazing. And it actually made the movie because it's yes. full of like 1980s saxophone meets gothic creepy soundtrack. Yes. Oh my God. I When I started watching, as I had seen it before and I convinced Maggie to watch it, I think there was a little reluct- reluctance on your part because all of these 1980s BBC adaptations can be, re- can really try your patience. I mean, they're really, can they, they, they can be really stagey and the acting's not great, you know, but I was like, no, you're going to love it. It's a barrel of laughs and everybody references the saxophone, but the stage is set right in the very first scene. They did the same thing that Davies did later in 2007, where, where it opens on Kathy reading a novel, Catherine Moreland reading a novel. And in this one, she's reading it and she's sort of the voiceover of the creepy text then it cuts to the illustration of a gothic guy and the rock guitar yes. like <laughs> lick of like and also like I was just like at that point I was just like this is the shit I'm really going to enjoy this and I did I thought that actually the imagination sequences of Kathy imagining herself in the gothic stories were better in this version. Oh, really? Because they were even more crazy. 
They were more creative too. Like in one of them, she's all like dressed up in black and she has this maid and it's, she's clearly Italian and the maid is like the Bandetti. And I'm like, wow, they really went more into the Gothic sort of scenarios than with, with, with 2007, she's always just like dressed in white and running away from. Yeah. I really enjoyed her little fantasies. And there's one where they like, they're actually disturbed. Like there's violence in them. Oh, yeah. Like when the woman uh-huh. is like sewing her fingers oh, that's or nice. they like show her getting cut with a sword. Like I just thought it was more like hardcore Gothic and I enjoyed that. It was hardcore Gothic. And now this movie, uh, has flaws, but it also has things we enjoyed. Um, I, as everybody knows who has seen it or even heard about it, they completely missed the joke of it. Yeah, being they're... her imagine it. It's not Catherine's imagination that everything is gothic in this movie because so many people and things that happen are also gothic. They they changed the storyline to make the intrigue real, which is completely undercutting you know the the story in general. But Let's talk about the things we loved because all in all, it was a fine holiday romp. And um, I believe, Maggie, you had some things to say about the casting. Yes. Uh, but first of all, the soundtrack made this whole movie for me. I really liked. Um, I thought that the girl who played Catherine was okay. They clearly wanted a big-eyed ingenue, yeah. which whatever. Uh, Peter Firth played Tilney. I thought I know him from Hunt for Red October, by oh. the way. Uh-huh. Um, he plays one of the Russian sub commanders. Mm. I thought that he was excellent, if too old. Yeah, and a little dewy. The the makeup job, obviously. Yeah. Um, I thought that Mrs. Allen was very good. They gave her more of her silliness. Yes. I did not like the characterization of General Tilney, but we can talk about that later. My number one favorite performance in this movie, and this will probably surprise you, was actually John Thorpe. Oh, yeah. He was the best of all. He I completely was. Agree. He could have stepped out of the book. He was fantastic. I don't know who that actor is. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else before. But I thought that his character was actually the closest to the book and what the best performance. Because he's, I just, he was so great. I just he thought was, he was saying damn it every two sentences. His comedy chops were there. Yeah, he really just, was a delight. I think, I don't know. I feel like I liked this movie in spite of, like, when I think of the things you're like, to say the things you really liked about it. I'm like, there's actually not that much, but for some reason, <laughs> I still enjoyed watching it. Well, and here's the thing, too. I mean, the really, Peter Firth is a handsome man. The uh, makeup that they did, um, oh, I don't know whether they were awful. Yeah, I don't know whether they're not keyed into the existence of like powder or like how to make actors matte. But he was so dewy, especially during the ball scenes in the early part. He's very that, pouty-lipped, and he was pouty, he was pouty, and, and and so Ke- I was watching it, and Kevin walked in, and it was on an extreme close-up of Peter Firth's very <laughs> sweaty-looking face, and Kevin just goes, ah. because he he says but um by the end you know what i will admit that um some of the scenes with peter firth were really kind of sexy in his intensity certainly that whole scene where they go on their country walk and then they're on the river in a boat or canoe or something and he's paddling along and he's being very flirtatious and but he's being very 
intense and Eleanor is the one who lightens it up by laughing. I thought that scene was really good. And that's the scene where he's, he's rowing and there's that soprano saxophone. Yeah. Kenny G moonlighting. G, but you know what it did? It gave that, it was so atmospheric and so obviously wrong for the time period, but in a way it gave it a dreamlike quality uh, Mm -hmm. that I, if I didn't quite enjoy it, I really dug it. You know what I mean? I'm like, this I thought is- the scene between the two of them where he's speaking to her and they're leaning in closer. They're in the Abbey and he reaches up and touches her face. Mm-hmm. I forget what they're talking about exactly. They had excellent chemistry and I think it's all because Peter Firth is a great actor. He, he, I don't he, think she was particularly... She, she did fine with... Being doe-eyed, I thought. I mean, I thought she was fine. I I think she checked all the boxes. And um, what did you? What were your thoughts about James Hardy? Is that his name? Who was that? The general, General Tilney. Oh, oh. Well, first of all, I was like, holy shit, that's the guy from Sense and Sensibility. Yeah, he's Sir John Middleton. This and- is Robert Hardy. And by the way, he's also the Minister of Magic. Yeah, Cornelius Fudge. Yeah. Um, I thought they made General Tilney just like. A congenial guy? Yeah, he was. He was right. congenial. Yeah. What's the, I mean, he he liked being on time for things, but he was, and he had, they had friends. Like, they had friends. They inter- they created new characters who come and stay with them at the Abbey and do, like, they sing opera. And, but it's just under, like, Eleanor is supposed to be completely isolated there. And that's part of, like, the abuse. Right. But then they have, he has, like, a best friend, like, a French Marquise who like whispers in his, it made no sense to me. I didn't understand that change at all. Yeah. Introducing so, like these friends and guests. I did not and, understand it. Yeah. And then the Mark, Mark, Mark or whatever, she, she is styled. They introduce her into the story. She has no clear purpose. She's styled oh, very like, I don't know if it's supposed to be. I thought it was like an earlier Georgian look because she's all white and well, she's trying a, to make her French. Okay. Here's yeah. this. And this is something I, it pinged on immediately and it bothered me throughout the entire production. I am not a costume or clothing historian or expert, but it was very clear to me that the men's costumes and styling and the women's hairstyles and makeup were like 40 years too early or like 30 years off. Some of Everyone them with like the was, white wigs. Definitely. I have to tell you, they made it look like it's set during the French Revolution. Yeah, right. When they, they made it look like it's in the Georgian. 1780s. And it was, it was more Georgian than Regency. Men yeah. were not wearing powdered wigs. Well, yeah, there was this whole time period where it turned, and then there was the, the hair powder tax. And this is when men started to have their more natural hair color. Yeah, some of the older guys, I could see the general maybe retaining that powdered wig look just because probably the older people didn't change with the times as quickly. But But she, and I must, I don't know, I don't know, maybe someone did all this research into it because certainly some of the historical details were very interesting and seemed vaguely, at least sort of kind of accurate. All um, of the men's clothes looked off to me. They looked like they should have been in 1776 musical instead of <laughs> Northanger Abbey. Um, I also, if you've ever seen the movie, this is a very deep dive. It's also a BBC movie from about the same period. And it's called The Scarlet Pimpernel. 
and it stars Jane Fonda, not not Jane Fonda, uh, Jane Seymour. It is set during the French Revolution, and it looks like they just took the stuff from that movie. And they had, you know, like the big round hair with the ringlets coming off. Mm-hmm. That is like not. <laughs> that is the hairstyles the women had in this movie. And to me, that is not period accurate. With the French stuff, with them being like, oh, she's French. There's this whole thing where uh, Tilney, you know, Peter Firth explains, oh, she married a Frenchman and he was beheaded which saves her being suspected of Jacobin sympathies. I'm like, okay, they're trying to situate this historically, which is not necessary. But I thought with the story about the him being guillotined, I'm a, is it guillotine or guillotine? I don't I know. I thought it was pronounced guillotine, but what do I know? With him being guillotined, that was an element to add the tension of the Gothic into it. Like, ooh, a horrific thing happened. So that's the only reason I could think of. And But there were other, you know, whoever wrote the script clearly was, like, interested in, you know, the history of the era. Because Mr. Allen, who, by the way, was weirdly affected in this version, uh, kind of like a fop. That. Yeah, but he goes. Oh, they they charged that little shoemaker with treason merely for starting a reform movement, and and I had to go back up and look like look at what yeah, he was. I was talking wondering, about. like, is that an actual historical event? Yes, it is. And um, yeah, I forget the name of the guy, but that's exactly what happened. He was trying to reform, and they charged him with treason. Anyway. I was like, what is this adding? Clearly, they just wanted to situate it in historical like yeah. historical context, which is fine, which is fine. I yeah. learned something. I was interested. Um, and they kept uh, they kept the details of like the pinery and stuff like that in there, which I thought was cool. What did you so I very when they arrive in Bath, they speed through, I mean, it's only a ninety minute long movie. But they speed through everything that happens into Bath very quickly. and they, take out scenes she has with Tilney and compress other scenes. And I was wondering what your thought on that was. Like, we only see her hang out with Isabella, like, once on their yeah, own. Yeah, they really do. They really and do shorten all of that. And we, I we know, get- I really hated Isabella, like, the way <laughs> yeah. they did. Oh, she was so annoying. I had to slap that bitch. <laughs> she was. She was weirdly affected, too. So you don't, You. I mean, that is what the character is supposed to be affected, but you're supposed to see a little bit more of her artifice rather than just thinking this actress is very weird and maybe not well, a good. She's supposed, this is why I thought, I mean, I, it just made me kind of want to watch the more recent one again. Yeah, because, Mulligan was um, but it's like, you're not supposed to Isabella's awfulness is not supposed to be transparent right off the bat. Right. You're otherwise, why, why would you be friends with her? I feel yeah. like John Thorpe's kind of is, but Catherine knows he's terrible. Yeah, they screwed up a lot of things about the plot. First of all, they left out the part entirely where she promises to take the country walk and then she's swept off by Thorpe and her brother and Thorpe insists that he sees the Tilneys, you know, driving out and so she can go with them. And, you know, there are all these hurt feelings about, you said you were going to take a country walk with us and then you weren't even there when we called, you know, kind of thing. And the, so the only thing they did, what they left in, they took out that episode, but they left in the episode where she agrees to take a walk with Eleanor Tilney and then Thorpe goes to Eleanor Tilney and says, no, it has to be a different day. So they kind of, I mean, I, this is weird. I'm glad, I was glad in a way they left out that first episode because honestly, it's so painful to me to think about 
accidentally slighting your friends in that way. Yeah. I always get very anxious when it happens in the 2007 version. I, I for whatever You're reason, so cute. it really upsets me that I just think that's so <laughs> awful and now they're bad and she just she needs to explain herself. And it's so, I, I just know that feeling all too well of feeling that need to explain myself. But anyway, yeah, I feel like they left in enough that if you had read the book, all the notes would be there for you. But if you had not read the book, you might have been going a little bit like, why do I care so much about Isabella? You know, like, why do I care at all about Isabella? She's in like three scenes. Yeah, you're very, you're very cute. Oh, thank you. They just needed, they just wanted, I mean, it's only 90 minutes. They had to compress everything that happens in Bath. Yeah. Um, to have time to, I didn't mind the fact that they spent more time at Northanger Abbey, which, by the way, not an abbey. No. Clearly a castle, like with a moat and turrets. Guys. Now that we're so keyed into the fact of the abbey having historical significance, it was a huge disappointment to have this thing be called an abbey. And then they roll up to what is the most castle-y looking castle in all of England. It is called... Uh, Bodiam Castle. I looked up where they filmed it. And I, I got excited at first because I thought, oh, I bet it's Blaze Castle. I bet they rented out Blaze Castle. How cool would that be? You know, because they're they filming in, ba- in Bath. That's the other thing yeah. I love about this adaptation. You could see the Crescent. You could see the, all the Bath locations. It's very cool. I love that atmosphere. Um, but I thought it was going to be Blaze Castle. But no, it actually is a royal castle. It's from like the 1300s. I believe it's in Sussex. I looked all of this up five minutes before the podcast began. Um, but no. And then out of curiosity, I was like, well, how did they do in the 2007 version, uh, the Davies version? So I looked that up because that's also a very imposing building. But that is also, that's Lismore Castle in Ireland. But they get partial credit because it used to be an abbey. So there you go. That makes sense. I mean, that kind of tracks, right? Like if you lived there, you would make like fortification. You would change. Take an existing building, you know, already yeah. had the infrastructure. Yeah. And I don't actually care what it's called. If I look at it and the movie is called Northanger Abbey and I look at the thing and I'm like, that's a castle. <laughs> <laughs> Guys. <laughs> Yeah, so they, Whereas they in the current version, you look at it and you're like, oh, that looks like like a, like a monastery, like an abbey. Like, yeah, it could I'd be. be driving down and I'd see that and you'd be like, oh, that's a Catholic yeah. thing. Well, certainly Whereas this about. one's like, there's a fucking moat. Yeah, there's a moat. Yes, it could not look any more like a child's drawing of a castle. I did think it was cool. Things that I liked. She sees it on her way to Bath. And she's yeah. like, look at that place. What is that? And she's got her book. And the driver's like, it's Northanger Abbey. <gasps> Northanger Abbey. Like, it's so, like, full of promise. And so when she finds out that she's going there with the Tilneys, it makes it even more exciting. It builds up the mystique of it. And I thought it was cool. They had her, rather than just, you know, uh, messing around with the chest and being late for dinner after she arrives at the Abbey that first day, rather than just ha- being late from her own folly, they have her get lost in the castle, which was not very much to the point, but it was cool because she got to run around in the castle and she was like on the ramparts and there were these doves that freaked her out. And then, yeah. you know, she's in this room with the canary. It's all very ethereal. They did a nice job with the atmospherics. If you can get over the fact that it's not an abbey. And I have to say, it was the weirdest choice to introduce 
those guests in the yeah. middle of her stay in the Abbey uh, for the reasons you mentioned, but also because they were almost setting up like a Jane Eyre kind of thing where um, Catherine was in the corner and Tilney was singing opera with this other young woman who was there who then insults Catherine by saying, oh, she's as natural as my dogs or whatever. And I got to say, Tilney singing opera like that really took all the sex appeal out of him. He, yeah. <laughs> it is the most affected singing you have ever seen with all his like body language and stuff. And he, you know, this, I was it really him singing? Cause the singing was not great. I'll just well, lay it out there. I think it really was him. Yeah. And it's, um, it's yeah. not uh, great. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm struggling to understand what the point of that was. And the only thing I can come up with that whole scene, because like I said, it undercuts the isolation that they have. The only thing I can come up with, the point of that is, is to, like, so she is there because General Tilney thinks she's an heiress and is rich. And putting her in that situation shows a clear difference between her socially and the Tilneys. She doesn't speak Italian. She doesn't, she's never seen opera. She, they're like drawing a point of like saying she's so natural. Oh, like yes. they're, it's kind. I guess you could say it's just supposed to show like she by marrying she is very much not in re- reality. Despite what they think of her, she is not in their social class. Well, yeah, totally. And one of the things I wrote in my book is after that scene, I I wrote why would she want to be associated with this family or any of these people. Because they're also unpleasant, and and Tilney Henry Tilney has sort of aligned himself with their way of life by singing in this affected way. That I just didn't understand the point of that scene at all. Yeah, well, and then the um the little servant boy who's with the marchioness or whatever, um who is black or at least biracial. It's nice to see some diversity in these Austin adaptations, right? But he just sort of leads her outside and starts doing cartwheels in in the 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 very ethereal atmosphere motion. That was a very 80s sequence, right? <laughs> was it? Where yes, have you ever seen okay. This is it's not it's not the same thing as to this at all, but this movie to me in some ways was evocative of movies like Legend and Labyrinth. Hmm. Um it is not a fantasy, but the heroine has these like fantastical uh, daydreams and this the like crazy soundtrack and these kind of weird like dreamlike sequences it just felt very 80s I could see that and, and I didn't understand what the point they were trying to make was um, but it certainly took her out of that environment and made Northanger Abbey mystical again um, which I guess is what they were going for I don't know. That whole sequence was so odd. But And it's the, one you never forget. I have to say, when I thought back on this and I said, we should watch this, that's what I remembered. I remembered the cartwheels and oh, I remembered the saxophone. And but I the mean, opera, the, the singing opera, it was two numbers. Like, it just kept going on. I'm like, why? <laughs> I think, but this is a good point that you made earlier about how they interjected with dialogue, like historical context. Maybe the, the, the people who made this movie really wanted to, like, show how people lived and what they would talk about. Oh, sure. And, and, and tell what they would me, do for entertainment. They made tell me so much of the, um, 
a gentleman who's been absorbed into this ridiculous, some of these ridiculous societal expectations and norms. Like he's, he is just like he is in the book where he's become this very courtly version of a gentleman where he's got all of this wit and he's very into himself. But he also, there's this very interesting aside where they're, at, they're still in Bath, they're at the ball, Frederick Tilney is there. He, uh, Henry Tilney and Frederick Tilney are off to the side. They they sort of come together to talk about it after they Frederick. Banter. Just, I liked that scene banter. a lot. And they're taking snuff. If you notice, he opens yeah. that little box and they're both sniffing like they're, it almost seems like they're doing drugs to me. Cause you know, like that kind of like sniffing something up your nose. It's very yeah. associated to us with like doing cocaine. But, but even Henry at that time says, I could have called your every move this evening, Frederick. And he, they are more friends. Frederick and Henry are more friends and more alike in the beginning of this movie. And they make him more you know, dandified or foppish. And even when they're driving, um, Maybe this was not the intent, but when Henry Tilney is driving Catherine to Northanger, he says, my current passion is a pinery, which is growing pineapples, which is a very sort of thing that gentlemen would do that is kind of just a waste of time and money to produce something that's very, very expensive that no one actually needs. It's sort of a a rich guy pursuit and not like a a man of the land, a clergyman, you know, this sort of honest, you know, like humble estate of of Woodston. Um, They, in fact, they, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he's not, Henry Tilney is not a clergyman in this version. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I kept waiting because his father, like, makes references that he should get a job and do something. And I was just like, wait, is he not a clergyman in this one? So why does he he leave? Why does he leave Northanger Abbey all the time? Like, what's he doing? It's never... The line is like, oh, my estate has been left alone for so long. I have to do some business there. You know, like, I have to go back to my estate and help administer it. He's like a landowner. Yeah, I didn't... I was just like, what? Because that was another thing when he's... When he and Frederick have their little brotherly banter at the ball when he's dancing with Isabella, there's no, like moral disapproval of what he's doing no not at all it's just like you scamp yeah oh you frederick you're so predictable like you'd go after the hot newly engaged girl but it's like henry tilney in the book does have i mean he is a clergyman he has a sense of morality right he's like he even when he called out catherine on her behavior like we spent a lot of time talking at jasna about his like holier than thou attitude and his like disapproval of her on like moral grounds for her ideas it didn't even come across really as that so much in this film when he gives his speech no in fact his parting line when he gives that speech is has one silly novel really done this to you sort of like calling her silly rather than calling her you know you can't just walk around and accuse people of murder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is serious. You shouldn't do that because, you know, it's not right. Yeah. But I don't know. And then, oh, this version, the plot was so weird. Like, he, I'm trying to remember how it went. There's no actual scene where she gets kicked out. No, that was the other weird Yeah, thing. they're like, General Tilney wants to see you. And she's like, oh, no. And then the next scene, she's home. She's in a carriage. Yes, you, you do not know at the end why Catherine thinks she got kicked out. 
You don't even understand that. You don't know if she knows it's because she's poor. You don't know if she's wondering because of what she said and maybe telling, you know, tipped her hand. Like, these are all decisions that a director could make about with the motivation. But that was the weirdest thing, too. You don't even know, like... If I hadn't read the book or seen any of the other movies, I'd be like, what just happened? Like, why is she at home? Why didn't she get kicked out? You don't, I mean, it, it's It wasn't annoying. even clear that she got kicked out, though. That's the problem. Yeah, maybe she should just just left. Maybe the yeah. general mad. She just left. Yeah, no, I completely agree. The other thing is they kind of screwed up the motivations of Thorpe. Because when he tells General Tilney that Catherine is an heiress... Isabella has already received the letter from John saying they can't get married because John's not as rich as she thought. Ah, so Thorpe now right. should know that that Catherine's not an heiress, and and but tells tells Tilney General Tilney that she is anyway. So the motivations are kind of screwed up. Later, General Tilney says Thorpe the Thorpes were yeah. conspiring to ruin us, which makes no sense at all. Let me yeah. just say that. But yeah, it, a lot of the. The some the the plot stuff was not well thought out. It doesn't hang together. Yeah, and and like what yeah, I was that. saying before about the atmosphere that Catherine is in is all egging her on towards suspecting something gothic. This was the thing that made me the most m- the most angry. The laundry bills were not laundry bills. In no, this they version, were love letters. They were love letters between Eleanor and the guy she can't get married to, <sighs> which completely undercuts the joke. Yeah, it was stupid. I don't know and why they did that either. Alice the maid goes so far as to tell Catherine that Mrs. Tilney was unhappy, uh, which also eggs her on. Whereas in the book, we have to understand this is all coming out of her head and her own suppositions that are sort of poisoned by gothic novels. Yeah, I just didn't. There's a lot of choices in this I didn't understand. Uh, another positive thing I did like, they actually show them in the Roman baths. Yes. Oh my gosh. We have to talk about that. I was so, it was so cool. Disoriented. I was so disoriented by that. Cause I could not stop fixating on the fact that they all had these plates tied around yeah, their necks. The was it like snacks? Like, I was like, did they bring their snacks? snacks. With them? No, I, I looked it up on Jane Austen's Regency world, that blog uh, that we mentioned that is in, uh, um, that is in among the Janeites. that anyway, I read about it. It was actually, what they did was they carried um, sweet smelling stuff near their face because the um, Roman baths were hot yeah. baths and, yes, they smelled like eggs. And you I don't know. remember ever seeing in a costume drama a depiction of people. At, I mean, people talk about taking the waters yeah. and going to bath. But I don't recall ever seeing that depicted before. Bold choice and to do it in the baths. I thought it was very cool. I don't know if they were actually in the baths. In, you know, in this setting, but it certainly looked a lot like I've actually been to those Roman. Yeah, Roman we have together baths. Uh, yeah, and we, t- you know, we toured them, and uh, you can look down and see the sort of steaming water. It looked just like that. I don't know if they yeah. got permission to film in there or what, but it was very effective. Um, but yeah, the plates are wild. You really get distracted. You're like, what the hell are those plates? Yeah, like um, I said, I thought they were snacks. <laughs> That's kind of what I thought too. <laughs> and I was also very surprised. I don't know if this is accurate, but they're not separated by gender. Oh yeah, I don't know if that was accurate. I don't know why everyone had these orange bathing costumes on. I don't know if that's. Oh God. well, you're in the water. You don't want to get your silk all messed oh, up. Oh sure. But, like sure. it was just so ridiculous because they still had their hats. Their hats on. on. I loved it. Uh, it was so funny. The hairstyling and hats in this were. I don't want to say they were terrible because it was obviously super elaborate. 
And so in that, it was fantastic, but they were terrible. Like, why? (laughs) I don't know. I did also like the double framing. So the beginning and the end of the movie are almost exactly the same. And that Catherine is standing by the same tree thinking and her little brother comes running up yelling Kathy and sees her in the beginning. She's by herself. She's reading her book and he's there to tell her the Allens are there in the end. She's smooching Tilney and dreaming of her future when he runs up and sees them smooching. And so I thought that was just kind of like a nice, a nice little book callback. Can I admit that the other thing I remember so vividly from the first time I watched this years ago is the line, since you left us, the white rose bush has died of grief. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but that whole scene, okay, first of all, there's fog or smoke. It's not the right part of the day for that, but he comes riding through. I don't know what it is supposed to be. He comes riding through this this mist, and she's there. He gets off the horse, and he's so intense. And he says, you know, something about blah, blah, blah. And then he goes, are you still a disgrace to your sex? And I was like, this is hot. Then he goes, <laughs> and she's just father, no, you're here. And he goes, yes, yes. <laughs> and then since you left us, the white rose bush has died of grief. And then he, this dramatic smooching. And honestly, in the moment, watching it this time, I was very caught up in it. I was like, this is very sexy. Honestly, I said to you, this is a Jane Austen adaptation that was made by a fan of the Brontes. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) That is fair. It is an adaptation made um, by someone who is wishing that Northanger Abbey was actually a gothic novel. But they just it's like they wanted to make Tilney like a Heathcliff, right? Mm. (laughs) I don't know. I just it was let me like putting it on when I had a day off and watching it for an hour and a half, like I enjoyed watching it. It is not a good movie, but I enjoyed watching it. No, there was, there was also, there was the confrontation. One thing they added, which I kind of liked being able to see was the confrontation. I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. No, you say it. The confrontation between Tilney and the general. Yes. um, after the general has kicked Catherine out and the general's got a falcon. So he's doing this falconry, which is more oh, gothic. God, but you know what? You can, All you could hear was the jingling of the stupid falcon's oh, bell. Oh, I know. But- yeah. It was, and then the camera was doing this panning. So it was panning in a circle and Tilney was almost always standing directly behind the general. So you get this feeling of trying to look over him to see Henry Tilney, you know, um, there were some stylistic, but you know, it was a swing for the fences. But I liked being able to see him confront the general and for they also they gave the general a gambling problem. So his financial motivations for wanting his children to marry rich are a little more comprehensible. But the story is also much more gothic that way. And it doesn't need to be. Um, But anyway, um, well, let's let's clarify, though, it wasn't just like a game like table game gambling. It was like um, he's ruined speculation. Like um, land and, and corporate, like, I don't know if corporate's the right word, but you know how people would be like, it's a speculation and you like lose your whole savings. Oh, it's right. A, that's also very of the period. Yes. Right? Yes. The wild gambling that went on, which I only know about really from uh, Georgia Hire books, 
because Austin really doesn't talk about, you know, young men driving themselves to ruin with gambling. That's also a little bit more gothic-y for, for Austin. But um, what Wickham is, a gamester, Jane cried. I had not an idea of it. Or but he's not investing thousands of pounds in, like, a voyage to Portugal <laughs> or, like, sure. the New World to get or to India. You know, he's just, like, losing it. Losing poker. it. Yeah, he's just right. a shitty poker player. Right, sure. Um, to me, the whole like speculation thing, it seems that is also out of time for me because I'm used to seeing that in like more Western style oh, yeah. American movies or like or, like Industrial Revolution. Oh, it's in North and South. Yeah, so I was just about to say that. Yeah, Maggie. like it's they want him to like go into the speculation a and brilliant. like take all the money into some yeah, new factory or something. That's right. I was going to say, I was going to point that out to you, Maggie, that speculation is exactly the word they use in North and South. Girl, you know I've seen that movie, so, that miniseries, so many times. You showed it to me. Did I? Was I the first person to show it to you? Tried carefully. Did you like it? I loved it. Okay, good. <laughs> you can tell. There's my- a right answer and a wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I have to read you this exchange from earlier today. I, I texted Kevin, and I said, this is a public service announcement, Colin. The rise of Skywalker was good. And I then, loved it. Then he texted back, now I feel safe telling you that I think the Patricia Rosima Mansfield Park improves substantially on the book. <laughs> <laughs> he liked it, too. He's just sticking. He's just screwing around with me. After we cut... I'm not a, I didn't see the Star Wars movies when I was little, so I'm not emotionally invested the way other people are. And I, I totally understand and respect that fandom, you know, and I'm not a part of it. But I, I love I mean, the rise. I am a part of it, and I don't respect a lot of parts of it because a lot of people who are fa- in that fandom are garbage. I, that I, is true. Like, Star Wars has turned into one of, like, the more toxic fandoms, much to my regret and yes. sadness. That I loved The Last Jedi, and I loved The Rise of Skywalker, and I don't see that one negates the other. Anyway, but we walked out of it, and I was so thrilled because I was so sure that he and everyone would be so thrilled with it. And I turned to him, and I I, I was just waiting to hear his effusions of happiness. And he goes, meh. And I go, what are you talking about? I had almost the exact same reaction, but I knew that Bay. I mean, I don't think it's a movie without... Hello, welcome to our First Impression Star Wars podcast. (laughs) Um, I did not think it was a movie without... critical criticism or flaw but i i just i had such a visceral experience watching it to the themes but here's the thing if something has themes of found family and the consequences of free choice and that is what drives the action is people's free choice i'm gonna like it (laughs) so star wars harry potter like these things are all about that People are not good and bad, Harry. It's, you know, you choose to be a, you're not just a death eater or a good person. Like, it's the choices you make. I'm so into that. I love it. And so this movie, I felt, but Bay's the same way. He did not, he has other, he has reasons where he did not enjoy it completely. And I don't know. Why can't people just like what they like? (laughs) I know. I don't mean to give anybody a hard time if you didn't like it either. So, but yeah, no. I, um, yeah, overall, overall, this is an adaptation that I probably won't be returning to, but I, I yet yeah. remember fondly, you know what I mean? Yes, that's fair. Yeah. It's fun to watch. Like if you and I get together and we want something fun to watch, you're like, let's watch that crazy 
Northanger Abbey. Something campy you can drink white wine to. I have to say, I enjoy this adaptation much more than I enjoy that Mansfield Park adaptation with Haley Atwell that we reviewed from 2008. Oh, oh, with Billy Piper? Yeah. No Mm, offense. I don't know which. I think I enjoy that one better. Uh, I know you. You know, I have a girl crush on Haley Atwell. Yeah, I know. Um, but Kristen, okay. you had you had mentioned before we started uh, recording that you wanted to talk more about the pineapples. Oh my God, Maggie knows that I've been sitting on this. Get ready, everyone! Strap in to talk about the pineapples. <laughs> so my the thing pinery. now, I, I, Henry Tilney and his pinery. I, yeah, Henry Tilney and his pinery. I I have become addicted to looking into Persuasions Online, which is Jasmine's um, magazine. You know, like. Uh, I think it's peer-reviewed. I don't know. The publication they put out. There's an article that I came across called Was Northanger Abbey's General Tilney Worth His Weight in Pineapples? And it it talks about how modern readers won't necessarily understand what it means that he has all these hothouses and that he has this pinery. And when they talk about his gardens, they say Catherine was in this gardens and, and she sees like essentially a whole parish at work in his gardens, which makes him look very industrious or like he's supporting industry and he's this this sort of virtue around it. But actually when you look closer and when you see what he says about his pinery where he's growing the pineapples, you realize all this work is going into something so frivolous because a pineapple, first of all, I didn't realize this, the pineapple plant produces one pineapple per bush, right? That's it. I did know that, but it's because I've been to Hawaii. All right. Okay. So there you go. And General Tilney says the pinery has yielded only 100 in the last year, which means this guy has over 100 pineapple plants in hothouses on his estate. Now, they're tropical plants. So these hothouses, um, which which may have had glass in the ceiling, but, but at this time were brick on the sides, they, they had to be fueled. They had to either... Um, either rotting horse manure was in there to sort of warm up the plants, but also there were stoves attached to these, right? And they constantly had to be burning to keep the pineapples warm enough in this colder English climate so they can grow. So this guy, um, Christopher J. Natali, is the person who wrote it. Uh, He's from California State University. And it's, again, it's a Jasna article, but he does the math. And he says that each of these pineapples cost $12,000 in today's dollars uh, to produce. And that is the kind of waste that Northanger Abbey is spending its manpower on. And I just thought... Do you think that the implication is that the pineapples were for the family's use or that they sold them? Oh, that is a good question. Obviously, the family couldn't eat them all, but I suspect that they were... So pineapples were, to be able to offer a pineapple to your guests was a huge thing because it meant you were super, super wealthy, right? Right. And in fact, probably he was gifting the pineapples to his other wealthy Mm -hmm. friends to like show off. Maybe he was selling them as well. That is a good point. Um, But they're certainly not necessary. And all of those, the people in the parish... Um, could have been like raising food for themselves, but instead they were just fueling these hothouses, growing all of these exotic plants. And I looked into it, and apparently they had like vineries for grapes, and they had orangeries for oranges, you know, uh, hmm. they were, it was all this rage. And then in the Victorian era, they figured out that you could grow them in pits. 
So rather than having like the hothouse, they would sort of put them in these pineapple pits to keep them warmer and use the rotting horse manure. Anyway. Tell me more about the rotting horse manure. (laughs) That is what I found out. (laughs) And I loved that. Is that detail in the book when General Tilney is showing her the grounds? Does he point out the pinery? No, but he he says something like the pinery is gilded. The other thing I could never quite figure out, too, is that he also mentions a tea house, tea mm. hyphen house. And I thought that's where they were drinking tea, but actually I believe that's where they were growing tea as well. Oh, interesting. I, know. Um, I, I did not re- remember um, these details from it. No, I, I, re- I remember Googling it and not being able to come up with a satisfying sort of answer to that. But the last thing, unless you have anything else you want to talk about. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, No, it was just crazy. It was crazy. Come on. Like the hair was crazy. The makeup was crazy. The soundtrack was crazy. That dream sequence with the child doing cartwheels was crazy. Peter Firth was in a completely different movie. I just, I was just kind of like, what am I watching? But I was into it. The whole is great. No, what am I trying to say? What is the thing where like the sum of, it's greater than the sum of its parts? Yeah, sure. The whole is greater than some of its parts. I enjoyed sure. it more than you would think based on my picking it apart and hating everything. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I enjoyed it more watching it than talking about it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but I did. I enjoyed it. The last thing I want to talk about is another article I found in Jasna. It is called Northinger Abbey and the Sexual Selection, Genetic Immortality. Or yeah. Northinger Abbey and Sexual Selection, Genetic Immortality. It's by Beth Lau. Um, it came out um, volume 38, 2018. And she's talking about the like evolutionary sexual strategy of Isabella Thorpe versus Catherine Moreland because they both want men that can support them and give them the lifestyle that they wish to maintain, right? Mm -hmm. But if you notice what Catherine is attracted to, when she first meets Henry Tilney, she's attracted to his wit, his sort of sparkling personality, and that fascinates her. And it, because it, and I think it sort of conveys a level of intelligence, um, mm-hmm. you know, a certain empathy in order to be funny, you have to understand other people. That's what she's drawn into. Whereas Isabella Thorpe, her sexual like preference is just how rich the guy is. And which leads her to sort of do a one in the hand, a bird in the hand versus in the bush sort of error. Right. Tries even harder to get the richer guy. Whereas Catherine never makes that error because what she finds attractive is someone who is intelligent enough to sort of be adaptable. Um, and I just thought that was a really interesting point. Re- on that point and revisiting Henry Tilney's characterization in this film, I uh, they put in more of his like wordplay Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And clever witticisms and teasing of her than we've seen in other versions. But <laughs> if all you were watching was the movie, I don't know if it worked. No, you're certainly not attracted to him. Same way as kind of in the book. You're like, this guy is just in love with his own voice. And I think that 
the oh 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 I remembered something else. They would do like half of a thing. They'd have him start off on one of his things, but then they wouldn't finish it like Jane Austen does and be like, and here's the clever zippy oh. end. <laughs> right. And they did the same exact thing, and it made me so angry because they did it with Catherine's character. And I spent 10 minutes in the last episode talking about how I loved this moment, and it showed how smart she was. And she's not silly. She's not stupid. Uh, do you do you enjoy history? And they're like, yes, we love history. I don't like history at all. Oh, yeah. That's they, yes. Yeah, they never get they into it. Yeah. Be like, well, I don't read history because every time I do, it's just people say it's like men saying their interpretation of what happened. There's none of that where you're like, oh my God, Kristen, uh, Kristen, sorry, Catherine is actually like being a critical reader. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, they're just like, I don't like history. It was a shame. And that made me really angry. <laughs> <laughs> people not recognizing that that's one of the best lines. I'm oh, including that statement at all, unless you're going to have her follow it up with like, but here's why. Yeah, right. Alas. She did not have much of an arc in this as she does no, in the book. She doesn't grow as much. I mean, she, because, and the reason like, you still have her, you get her, you have her get brought to task by Tilney for her imaginations about his mother. And then presumably she's kicked out. And like you were saying, she feels really bad and blah, blah, blah. But we don't see that that at all the only thing she does do is she throws udolfo into the fire and that pissed me off more she defaced the book i know those books weren't cheap and burned it i know and they they got it on film they they just have this like book burning and i'm not one of those librarians who's like books right i do not fetishize books but even that hurt even for me to see that book on the fire and it's like leather bound it's like is that gonna even like what kind of mess are you making? I don't really, I don't like, I will turn over the corner of a page if I want to, mar- I'm not like books are pristine yeah. or whatever, but ripping the pages out of a book and throwing it on the fire to, it was, to me, that was like very violent. violent. And maybe it's just because I've spent so much time in Germany, but like book burning has very yeah, bad yeah. connotation. I did not like that. And I was just thinking like, oh my God, Kristen's going to watch this scene and lose her shit. Like they don't try to make Catherine very likable. No, they don't. And then when but she burned a book, I was like, mm-mm. Did, no, let me take this opportunity to say, all right, here I am in my soap, soapbox. Yes. I am I am a librarian by trade, and people think that I would lose my shit at that. But actually, being a good librarian means you have to be able to throw away and even destroy books, especially if you're working with information that is time-sensitive, like medical information or scientific information that goes out of date and can even be wrong. You have to be able to, to, to destroy. I mean, like, drop off at the recycling center, sure, but yeah. you know they're going to be shredded. And it's it's okay. It's not about the container. I have never fetishized a physical book. I am totally fine with electronic information. It's way of the future. So that's my little spiel. I don't have any problem with that either. I think the difference is when someone does that, defaces or destroys a book out of emotional reasons, Yeah, that's when I get upset. Yeah, well, now if that book... Was yeah. a, a nice book that people wanted to read. You know, it was it was valuable. Other people could have enjoyed it. You know, it, oh, you know what I actually would have thought would have been really much cooler is if she like took it, marched into the library at Northanger Abbey, and left it on the shelf there. Oh, that would have been cool. 
to like leave behind like this gothic thing that inspired me to feel this way will stay in the castle where it prompted the thought. I just don't. So when people like I get like you sometimes you got I donate books all the time. Sometimes you got to like you're saying that's fine. But if you destroy a book out of anger or like extreme emotional distress, like it just bothers me. I don't like it. Fair enough. And it made me not like her. I can't remember if Bay was home or not when I was watching that scene, but I was just like, this bitch! <laughs> it's not the book's fault. Anyway. Fair <laughs> I think Jane Austen would have been really shocked at that scene, too. Yeah, I agree. And it's also, like, books are expensive. Not everybody could read. Yeah. Not everybody had access yeah. to them. I don't know. I mean, I get it. Like, they're just supposed to show she's putting that thing yeah, away. Yeah, she's right? upset. And she's she's like, done with it. Done but with there's it other ways the you could have done it. I don't she's know. so dramatic. I also thought that I would have done the scene differently. When she's, like, asking Eleanor what happened with her mother, she says things like, did you see the corpse? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And Eleanor doesn't <laughs> react so. at all to Maybe that type of a little of bit more normal. She doesn't react at all to that type of language. I would have been like... Yes, I saw her body. I don't know. Maybe that's modern language speaking. But to me, it's supposed to be very clear that Catherine is in this, like, gothic fantasy now where words like corpse. Yeah, right. But it's like, that's her mom. Yeah. I can't remember if she says that in the 2007 adaptation. She says, so you didn't see her body? Yeah. She doesn't say, like, corpse seems very... Ooh. I forget what the book... It seemed like a good time to have Eleanor, like, check her. If my yeah. mother died and someone said to me, did you see her corpse? I'd be like, the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> right? Hold on. I'm going to look at what it says in the actual text. Okay, I was going to say, I'm surprised you don't have the whole thing memorized, Kristen. I'm, I'm sorry. Very disappointed. I'm getting worse <laughs> and worse in my old age of being oh, able to please. distinguish... You know I'm going to be 40 in, like, a month. I forgot about that. Yeah, if only you were going to fly, you could come to my bomb party. Well, for sure, corpse is not anywhere in this book. Okay. But that's like you were saying, this is an adaptation of Northanger Abbey that doesn't get the joke. The word body only appears twice and not in that context. I don't think she ever asks this in the book. I'm wondering if Davy saw this earlier adaptation and was like, ooh, good question, I'm going to put it in. Maybe. Maybe. I'm just thinking, if someone was asking me these kind of personal questions, I would definitely be like, like wow. why are you yeah. doing this? Yeah. Maybe Eleanor's just too nice. Well, do we have any new business? Do we have any new business? Have we gotten any interesting emails, Kristen? What's in the wheat sheaf? We have, in the wheat sheaf, we got a lovely message from Emer, uh, who was asking about a passage in Emma. So Emma, the movie is coming up in February and we were just in time for your 40th birthday and we were very excited about it. We are. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, you're not? Uh, the trailer leaves me feeling very cold, much like Emma's depiction in the film itself based on the trailer. Any Hollywood adaptation of an Austin, I feel like it's just a big event. You know, everybody's going to be going. Everybody's going to be talking about it. <gasps> what if I wear my dress when I go? Oh, my God. You should do that. I don't that. know if I'm that ballsy. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, Amir was asking about the snobbery in Emma. Even at the end of Emma, Emma still thinks that an alliance between Knightley and Harriet would be degrading. That... 
that Harriet is so much below Knightley that it would be an unequal and degrading match. And Amir was saying she really dislikes this side of Emma that thinks that even after she's supposed to have grown as a person. And I kind of thought my reaction to that was just that that's Regency society, baby. That's baked into everybody. Is Emma wrong? Yeah. And and later, later, Emma thinks the stain of illegitimacy unbleached by nobility was a stain indeed. And I don't know how much of that is normal Regency, um, you know, thought. I don't know if it was shocking for Austin to have put it into words that way. Probably not shocking, but um, a little, you know, more straightforward state and blunt than your average person would put it. Um, but yeah, I, I think even Knightley, you know, is still a baked in snob at the end. When Emma is thinking about, oh, Knightley always wanted me to be friends with Jane Fairfax. He deprecated my friendship with Harriet. It's because Knightley thought Jane Fairfax was more genteel, more worthy of Emma's affections, you know, and would be a better friend for her, would be, would have an elevation of mind that would benefit her more than Harriet. And so, yeah, I think a certain amount of that is just baked in Regency. I mean, it is so weird for us as Austin fans. We are swimming in this literature, which has some social values that we don't share. And that's what makes it to me almost like sci-fi or fantasy Mm-hmm. there's world building there's rules yeah. that we don't have in our modern day but we can accept that and and enjoy this story in that context you know and i don't think i mean it can still be snobbery but that doesn't mean that emma's not wrong if someone like knightley married someone like harriet smith an illegitimate nobody very silly i mean think about it could have actual like impact on their sure. social standing socially yeah so sadly that's the emma we're sort of stuck with at the end uh, do you want to talk about the trailer at all? The new movie trailer? Uh, what do you think? Let me say this one other thing, though, about that snobbery. What Austin is doing in her books is showing us that that snobbery is stupid because the most valuable people can be of the lowest social class, you know, and aristocrats can be completely worthless people. So she is sort of being subversive in that she's saying our social conventions are dumb. But at the same time, a character like Emma could never become as enlightened to say as like, oh, we should throw this off, you know? And Austin never goes as far as like, we need to throw off the burden of the gentility and the patriarchy. She doesn't go that far. She's operating within this context. Let me push back on that a little bit with Emma though, because can you name a character in Emma who is of a lower social class than Emma that is not silly or, or just yes. silly? So I can counter that Maybe by just saying, Jane Fairfax? So I can counter that by saying that Emma and Knightley, I think, both agree that Harriet is a better person than Mrs. Elton. But Harriet is also not smart, yeah. I don't uh, mean to say she's not educated. True. She's not. She is a silly character. She is comic yeah. relief. I think Jane I Fairfax don't... might be the, the key to that, too, because she is going to be degraded down to being a governess, but she is of a higher quality person than Mrs. Elton. She is basically the only person of a lower social class of Emma in Emma who I think is would support, like, oh, people poorer than me actually, like, aren't all ridiculous. Like, so she's kind of the, I'm trying to think of all the characters in Emma and they're all, I mean, she's surrounded by like a, a comedy 
it's a comedy, right? So, she, like, the oh, secondary oh. characters are all very silly and comedic, but I can't really think of anyone Maggie, who... Maggie, 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 Robert Martin. Oh, yeah, okay, Robert Martin's cool. Yeah, that's fair. And he could, he is probably a better sort of moral person than Mr. Elton. I or, actually, or Frank it, Churchill. <laughs> doesn't Knightley actually say like, oh, Robert Martin, wow, Harriet's really lucky to get him. Yeah, like, he's a yeah, good he's guy. He's a gentleman farmer, right. Yeah. Like, okay, that's a good point. But for the most part, the characters that are lower than, you know, so I say lower, I mean like socially, like economically, than Emma are like not really worthwhile people. Oh, 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 Maggie, Mrs. Weston was a governess. Yes, Mrs. West. Okay, and okay, she deserves to be. She deserves to be a a member of the gentility that yes, lends. You have you have successfully um, <laughs> proved my point. Good. Okay, I'm glad we're on the same page here. However, and then, yeah. I oh. will say, <laughs> <laughs> by marrying Mr. Weston, is Mrs. Weston now elevated from her previous status? Yes, but she is not on par with the. Uh, uh, Emma's family for sure. Yeah, Weston is not. I mean, Does he, he have a trade. What is his deal? What does he do again? I think he has the estate. He has an estate. Okay, if I'm not mistaken, because yeah, I wonder if his estate is part of Emma's dad's estate. No, that would be I interesting. Don't I don't know how so. it works. I think yeah no I think he has his own property but I don't I don't know I would have to go back and read it again but um, I know his like Mrs Church like um, the woman he married who became the first Mrs Weston sort of threw him into really bad pecuniary straits mm-hmm. right but I don't think he ever lost his like land. We'll have to do another Emma discussion of the book after the movie. But Mrs um, Miss Taylor's um, background still haunts her or sort of dogs her not really haunts her but it does dog her like when mrs elton moves into the neighborhood she says to emma i was astonished that she was so ladylike for was she not your governess oh fuck that woman that's i mean that's from the movie i forget if that line is exactly that way in the book but she does everyone is aware that miss taylor used to be a governess and for new people in the neighborhood they would learn that and know that and sort of maybe look down on her a little bit but that's what i'm saying about emma's comment about knightley and harriet like, look at that. This is not even someone as rich as Mr. Knightley. And she was like a respectable governess who was not an illegitimate right, right. daughter. Like, so it would have real actual consequences That's if true. Harriet did marry Knightley. That's true. Social consequences. There you go. Yeah. So what did you think of the trailer? The trailer made me laugh. Okay. And the other thing they did that was so smart for the non-Austinites in this world is that they made it very kinetic oh, in this movie, people will be running, people will be shouting, people will be throwing things, people will be, like, messing around and carrying... Did you notice, though, that Emma's dad seemed very... Vital. I mean, Phil Nye is an amazing actor, but is Emma's dad really going to be, like, running around? He is very vital. He is very spry. They they seem to have totally done away with the valetudinarian angle, unless, Maggie... They're going to have this super spry guy be constantly complaining about health complaints that he doesn't have because we can all see how he has vitality when yeah, he that'll wants be interesting. To, that would I'll be interesting to do that. But the I'll thing is, the thing is that I, I went back and I read the passage in the book and it does say that Knightley is heated. You know, he, he, they use the verb cried. Uh, he cried. Uh, Martin is a great guy or whatever. You know, he says, they, they say he looks upset or his face gets red or whatever in the text. 
No, you know, so they are supposed to be irritated with each other when Emma and Knightley are fighting. However, you mean the scene where they're like yelling at each other, talking over each other? However, Uh-oh. making two Austin characters shout in each other's faces is lazy writing, acting, directing. I don't know who wh- whose idea it was to have them shout at each other. These people would not have been shouting in each other's faces. That was not acceptable behavior. It's not supported by the text. And if that's the only way that you can show that two characters are angry with one another, maybe you should step back and look at some other techniques because that really bothers me. I think they're just trying to give it a more like modern feel and show them like they're such good. They're so at they have a lack of formality with each other, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I just thought the whole thing, like, there's a lot of white marble and there's a lot of <laughs> super high collars and Emma's face always has almost no emotion. And I'm just like, this feels very cold. It does seem me. a little antiseptic. It seems very stylized. I wonder if they're trying to get a little shine off of people who liked the favorite. No, exactly. That is actually what Bay said when I showed it to him. He said, this is, it looks like the favorite does Emma. Yeah, <laughs> which was a great film, right? Right, yeah, right, right. But so it's just going to be a different take. It's just going to—I mean, it looks pretty weird. I'm intrigued. Uh, yeah, I'm, I try to, despite being like, I hate all these things. Like, yeah, this is yeah. a trailer. Like, I have yeah, no yeah. idea. I could right. love the movie. I have no idea. We got to reserve judgment. We do, and I love uh, Miranda Hart. Oh, is she the one who's playing Mrs. Bates yes, or Miss Bates? Yes. Oh my God, is. from Call the Midwife, right? Yes. Okay, I want her to be Emma. <laughs> I think she would be a great Harriet too. Oh my God. A little old. I don't know. Cause Harriet's supposed to be like 18, but she would just be so delightful. Yeah. We'll have to see. Look forward to, uh, we'll have, maybe we'll do like a review episode. Yeah, we should. After we see it, we'll have to reread the book again. Always constantly rereading. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I signed on for a Jane Austen podcast. I knew the score, score, Kristen. You love reading. I do love reading. And I love reading often. And I love talking to you about reading often. Well, thank you. So, gentle listeners, we hope that you have had a wonderful holiday season. (laughs) There are only good things waiting for you with the dawn of a new year, including a new Jane Austen adaptation. What, do you have anything big planned for 2020, Kristen? Gonna finish my master's thesis. Gonna learn wow. how to play the drum. I know, Jesus. I'm gonna learn how to play the drums. Wow. I am going to go to a research training institute in Chicago if my application is accepted. But because I'm not flying in 2020, I'm going to have to take an Amtrak sightseeing passenger train called the California Zephyr, and it's gonna take almost two days. So. That's I need to tell you that long train rides seem romantic in movies and they are pretty sucky in real life. Oh, they're horrible. No, I've done them. I, I, I did them when I was in China. I, I did them during our, our tour of the Civil War South that I took with my husband years ago. It's, uh, it's rough. I understand that it's rough, but I am that committed to reducing my carbon footprint. Good Is this for you. the dumbest fucking thing I've ever done? <laughs> Undoubtedly, but I have announced publicly in a professional forum that I am not flying in 2020, and I have to stick to that. You go, girl. It sounds like you have a big year ahead of you. 
I'm not kidding. That's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. I hope it doesn't kill me. Also, we have to do this podcast. Also, I think my second book will come out. (gasps) Oh, my God. I know. I didn't know you were so close to being done. I'm very close to being done. It's in it. uh, An editor has it now. Um, She may, you know, she may hate it. So that may (laughs) affect what happens with it. But so I, exciting. my goal is to have it because I self-publish. So my goal is to have it self-published. And no one will ever read it. I mean, I'm not going to do like that. Do much you work. want to tell people what the name of the first one is in case they want to find it, or are you not comfortable doing uh, that? Yes, I I will tell I will tell everybody that I write fantasy romance, and um, the first book is called Goddess. I wrote it in 2015 in a um, hypomanic state. I wrote it in six weeks, and then I like took a long time revising it. But I published it in 2015. And then I've been trying to write a follow-up for the past four years, and I finally have a finished draft. It's like 140,000 words, which is wow. like the size of two books. I know. I had what an so accomplishment. Much, I had so many characters. <laughs> That's <laughs> okay. It's finished with the first book. But it doesn't suck. I read it again the other day from start to finish because I had to do like a typo pass and like remove all the repeated words that, you know, you don't know you're repeating, yeah. that kind of thing. And I was like, this actually is not bad. So and what is the name that you publish under? The name that I publish, yes, you will never just find my book by searching goddess. So I'm sorry. Yes, I'm asking the question because I tried to do that once and I was like, oh God. <laughs> I'm never gonna find it. No, the, the title of the book is stupid is stupid to market, but I didn't choose it. I didn't do any of this with the intent of making money, right? So just so you know that. So my pen name is Callista with two L's, Callista Hunter. And if you so if you go to Amazon or wherever you wherever fine ebooks are sold, because it's distributed to a lot of places, if you search Goddess Callista Hunter, you can read my YA fantasy. It is clean, it is chaste, it does not have a sex scene. It's the follow-up What's that? It's a romance, but it's not like a bodice ripper. No, it's a YA sweet chaste romance. The follow-up, however, uh, has many sex scenes in it. <laughs> And I don't know if I can put this out into the world with a straight face. It's going to be great. It's going to be great because I'm so into your characters. They're they're Lizzie and Darcy like banter is so good. (laughs) Thank you. I highly recommend it. Everyone in our book club read it and loved it. Really? Yes. All read it? We're going to (laughs) support you, Kristen. Everyone really enjoyed it. My mom really enjoyed it. Yes, your mom, she messaged me and she's like, I think you found your calling, which was a very sweet thing to hear. It really touched me. I'll never forget it. You know, and someone says. I couldn't believe that you, first of all, just write, finishing a piece of fiction or any book, right? Even a nonfiction, like any book is such an accomplishment. And then to have it be really good. (laughs) I was just like, oh my God, because you gave it to me to read as you were writing it. And I actually got really mad because I had to keep waiting. Sorry. No, Maggie, Maggie is in the acknowledgments in my first book because she read it before it was published. Obviously she read it to give me feedback. She invited me over to give me the feedback and she cooked me dinner, which is just an excess of kindness that I, don't I remember really this at all. It was so nice. It was so nice. Um, so you really, you really believed in the book and so did my mom and um, Lona Manning, a uh, friend of the podcast, Lona, um, we sort of got to be friends because, you know, I read her book and I loved it. And then she like reciprocated by reading my book and she contacted me. Like we didn't have an established relationship, but she contacted me. She's like, I really liked your book. Yay. Which 
know somebody is being sincere if they don't have to say it. You know, like if your relationship could have been severed, but she finished it and she liked it. So like, yeah, so that's good news. And um, yeah. That is all very exciting. Our 2020 is I'm already freaked out because we're going to try to move and I don't know how we're going to afford a house. Bay and I live in a one bedroom condo right now because I bought it like 15 years ago and I've lived here forever and I, I really like it, but it's just too small. And if we're going to like ever have a kid or anything like that, you can't have a one bedroom condo. Um, so I'm just like totally freaked out about trying to find someplace else to live. Oh, so man. that will be our big 2020. And the market in Northern Virginia is not on your side? Well, it kind of is because we are both buying and selling. Uh, okay. Because I own property. Like, I need to sell my condo. And we are close to where Amazon announced it will be moving. So property values have gone up. Like, on one hand, it's great because maybe we'll actually get some money for where we live now. But then it's bad because I don't know where we're going to go. <laughs> Uh, but you get this, you're, you're touring houses right now, right? Which is so fun. Uh, well, we're going to try to get back in. I mean, we've been gone for so long on our honeymoon. Um, we'll see. I don't know. I'm just uh, stressing about money. is just like the worst feeling in the world. And there's a lot of that in Austin, obviously. <laughs> obviously. Um, but it just really is. It just makes me feel like I think of how grateful I am for what we have, which is more than so many people. But then it also, but it's just like the millennial problem, right? Like all of us have student debt. I'm not even technically a millennial, and but it's like, I, I get it. None of us yeah. can afford houses. We all have student debt. It's just really difficult. So, but it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll all work out. It'll all work out. We'll end up in some adorable, probably townhouse somewhere. That'll be fabulous. I'm excited for you. Although it'd be sad not to come over to your place anymore and see that beautiful view. Yeah, I do. I really like where I live right now. She's on the 16th floor. Uh, it's awesome. Or should I, should I not say that? Should I like, uh, are we giving enough people information? I don't it, think so. Okay. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> I'm <laughs> on the high floor in a building. Let's just say that. Yeah. I don't think anyone's going to show up. And if you do, my dad has an extensive gun collection. <laughs> With which he's busy owning the libs. This is America, y'all. So, like everybody has guns. No, we. I, <laughs> but that is that. Like traveling abroad, that is the perception people have of this country, right? Sure. That we all have guns. Well, that it's all Idaho, like the wild west all the time. I can go out and buy a gun today in Idaho. I can throw it in my purse. No safety training. Nothing. That is I mean, ridiculous. I mean, it's... anyone who could give me a gun has to be checked. <laughs> like, that law is not right. Yeah, like. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, everybody, thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for our And from politics, it was a short step to silence. <laughs> <laughs> we do, like, from us to you, we do sincerely wish you a wonderful year full of Austin and light and love and happiness and laughter and the things that we try to share with you guys because we really we're I'm so thankful for like the little community we have and the friends that we've made through our podcast it's so wonderful it's amazing we're so we started out we started doing this as just like a passion project for Kristen that I was happy to help out with her for and I just like look how it's been like what three years uh 2016 I think is when we started yeah three years yeah, and it's just like really amazing. Three years, thirty thousand downloads, 
every state in America and oh. most of the provinces of Canada and Australia. Yeah. <laughs> Stay cool, Australia. I know you guys are basically on fire. Stay cool, New South Wales. Yeah. Oh, Shout God. out. Stay cool, Victoria. <laughs> All right, Kristen. Way to run the joke into the ground. <laughs> I'm like Howard Dean. Now I have to list all the provinces or people will be offended. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway, we love you guys and hope you had a wonderful holiday. Yes. Much love. And Maggie, would you like to do the honors? We have delighted you long enough. Enough.